Hey y'all, thank you for tuning in today. I hope you're having an awesome day. I'm Christy, and I've always had a fascination with some of the darker sides of life, from true crime to the paranormal and conspiracies. I also believe that knowledge is one of the most powerful gifts we've possessed. So since I already spend so much of my time consuming these topics, I want to share them and see if together we can learn from them. Today, I'm switching things up a little bit, and I have my significant other, Chris, here to join in on the conversation. Hello, thank you for having me. It's been uh, fulfilling to work on this project with you, so thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Today's case has been heavily covered and there is so much information out there, so you may have already known everything that we're going to share. But I remember learning about this case when I was a preteen. I saw a made-for-TV movie that, now when I look back on what I can remember about it, was heavily biased and made during a time when all of the information that is now available was not. But regardless, I was quite interested and what I thought I knew at first ended up being quite different than what I now know. What about you? Well, I've always been, I guess since a, a little kid, I remember being eight years old-ish watching this on TV. And back then, you don't really think too much about it. You just take everything that's happening on TV. Kind of traumatic because I remember, like, everything about it. But as I grew up uh, into, like, late teen, early adult, that's when I really started becoming fascinated with government cover-ups especially. And so I think that was, like, at the top of a very short list of things I was interested in right away. And at that point learning about it then with some fresh eyes it became clear that nothing what i remember as a kid was true like it was all narrative and that was kind of eye-opening and started me down the rabbit hole of the government will lie to maintain power and cover up any misdeeds which it did all of here so that's sort of the angle that interested me in Waco and yeah. still does to this day. So, I agree, yeah, um, to a lot of that. And I'm glad to have you here to talk about this together. Great. Today, we are talking about David Koresh and the devastating deaths that occurred on a compound called Mount Carmel outside of the small town of Waco, Texas. As I feel it's necessary to state, I'm not a legal professional. I do have a paralegal degree and I've worked as a legal assistant but I cannot give legal advice and I would not want to. My advice to anyone is to always seek the advice of a licensed attorney. Any information that I discuss or state is alleged unless proven otherwise in a court of law. I'm presenting this information for entertainment purposes and for open discussion about the information that is already made public. David Koresh was born in Houston, Texas on August 17th of 1959 and his legal name was Vernon Wayne Howell. When he was born, his mother was 14 and his dad was 18, and they split up shortly after his birth. Soon after, Vernon and his mother began moving around Texas. He loved to play music, and especially the guitar, and loved to flirt with girls. Through his early years, he kind of flitted around without much guidance or direction, until he found the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is a Protestant church denomination which follows a lot of the Old Testament beliefs, and they believe very strongly in an old-school way. They also heavily believe that Jesus' return is imminent and the end of days was upon us. They follow belief that the end of days will be marked by 
what they quote unquote call the opening of the seven seals. The seven seals are what prevents all the biblical plagues from unleashing havoc on the earth. They believe that the prophet will arise and open these seven seals, which will unleash these curses upon the earth, which will effectively cause Jesus to return to claim his people. This prophet was known as the Lamb of God. And in this church that Vernon had joined, he learned of a former member named Victor Hotef. And Victor believed that he was not the Lamb of God, but he believed he was one of the prophets who were part of the mission to assist the Lamb of God. Many people in his church did not believe his teachings and he was removed from the church. But there were several people in the group that did believe in him and followed him. So Victor in 1934 purchased 189 acres in Waco, Texas. And since his group split from the Seventh-day Adventist, he called his group the Davidians after David in the Bible. This plot of land would be referred to as Mount Carmel. There were over a hundred people that made Mount Carmel home. They grew an orchard, a dairy farm, had a sewage system, electricity, and they had their own printing press all within 10 buildings. It was said that they were able to spread their teachings to over 100,000 people around the world by dispensing their own religious teachings through their printing press. They flourished through the Great Depression and were able to continue on until 1955 when Victor died at the age of 69 years old. At this time, the Davidians had a power struggle. Victor's widow stated she was a prophet since she was his widow and she will continue on with his message. But another person piped up and said that he was the Lamb of God and he was the one everyone was waiting for and he should be made the head of the church. A lot of conflict goes back and forth with a few different people arguing that they should be the one in charge and the head of the church and owner of the compound. In the late 1970s, the group had another split and new group formed as an offshoot from the main group and they called themselves the Branch Davidians. They chose this name due to a Bible verse where the olive branch were known as God's chosen ones. The Branch Davidians viewed the refounding of Israel as a country in the 1960s as one major sign that the apocalypse was on the verge. They based their teachings on the book of Revelations from the Bible and the original teachings from the Seventh-day Adventists. Vernon grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and at 18, he joined a church revival where they were heavily focused on the apocalypse. This piqued Vernon's attention, and he really enjoyed learning about this and strongly believed this was the end of days. He started to study the Bible and focus most of his energy learning how to become a leader. To become a church leader, you can't just claim that you're now a leader. There's a process including being voted in by the church members. Vernon's behavior started to bother members of the church as they thought he was too heavily leaning on the apocalypse. He also had an affinity for younger girls and in his 20s would be seen flirting with teens around 14 to 15 years old on numerous occasions. At the age of 20, he began focusing a lot of his attention on the pastor's teenage daughter and started using many different Bible verses and scripture to try to convince the pastor that Vernon should marry the pastor's daughter. The pastor shut this down right away, and this was pretty much the last straw for the Seventh-day Adventist church that Vernon was a part of, and they kicked him out. Vernon's beliefs at this time are so ingrained in him that he immediately begins looking for another church to join, and he finds the Branch Davidians. Since the Branch Davidians were already so heavily invested in the apocalypse, and they held fast to some of the Seventh-day Adventist beliefs, 
he immediately felt at home with them. By this time, the Branch Davidians and Mount Carmel had sold off some of the land, and the giant compound was a bit smaller than it once was, but it still included a few buildings and had a gym, a church, a dining hall, a gun range, and apartments for people to live in. There were about 150 people currently living there. Everyone in the community had their own job, cooking, fixing things, security, teaching the children, etc. They took care of one another, lived their lives within this community. There were whole families living on the compound, and they were said to be very tight-knit. The citizens of Waco nearby at the time accepted the community, believing in their rights as U.S. citizens to live how they deemed appropriate. And when interactions around town happened with the community, they were pleasant and easy to deal with. So the citizens of Waco did not have any reservations around the community of Mount Carmel, allegedly. I know this is anecdotal, but it is interesting to note, and I know you're going to get into this a little bit later, but really until the Fed showed up with this narrative of the Davidians manufacturing drugs and, and firearms, but everybody knows about the firearms, lesser known are the accusations of manufacturing drugs. There was never a problem with this from the community. Everybody everybody coexisted pretty peacefully and happily and even said good, good things about them until the Fed showed up and started spinning that narrative. So that's at least interesting to me that that yeah no i completely agree and um i do touch on it later like you said and i i think it's really important as a part of the story to get into that is that they worked among each other lots of people that even as vernon gets involved in the community they the community they were intertwined within one another and yeah, there was doing, never any issues they were doing business together right. a lot of times they were selling them things uh yeah, it's just everybody existed pretty peacefully until, I mean, obviously until they didn't. Yeah, the narrative changed all of a sudden when they were had to be the bad guy. Yep. Yeah. So Vernon became incorporated within the community and eventually met one of the residents named Rachel, and he fell hard for her. Their main issue was she was only 14 years old. At this time in Texas, 14-year-olds could get married as long as their child uh, parents gave their permission. So we asked her father if he could marry her, and he approved. They signed an agreement, and they were married. Shortly after, they had a child. Unfortunately, this union wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, as it was rumored that Vernon liked to have his cake and eat it too. And he was having multiple affairs, including the leader of the Branch Davidians at the time, 67-year-old Lois Roden. <laughs> He was having an, an open affair with Lois, and most of the group was aware of their relationship. Most did not object. They continued their affair until Lois passed away. Her death left an opportunity for Vernon to step in as leader. Only problem was that Lois' son, George, also believed he was the rightful next leader and owner of Mount Carmel. This caused a rift and some of the group wanting George as a leader and the rest wanting Vernon to lead. Vernon's group at this time looked to him as not only their leader, but as though he was a savior. Not the savior to return, but another savior. The one and only that was sent here to open the seal and save Earth from the apocalypse. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, we, given Vernon Howell's penchant for younger women, I mean young women, the fact that he was having the affair with the 67-year-old, uh, what was her name? 
Lois Roden. Lois Roden, yeah. I mean, we can agree that that was probably just a power thing to, to, to be able to take control at yes, some point. Yes, I 100% think so as well. Um, because, you know, he was already wanting to be a leader. He had been studying it for most of his young life. And uh, then all of a sudden he's having an open affair with an old older woman, um, significantly from him at the time. And just because then as soon as she passes, he's trying to take over. Mm. Yeah. With David's followers believing he to be the Lamb of God, the one to save the earth, he begins to tell his followers that he has been receiving direct messages from God. And those messages include that he needed to have multiple wives, as many as he possibly could. Because, you know, that's got to be God's number one priority, making sure the Lamb who will save the earth is getting lucky. So with this, he takes on multiple wives. And while this goes against many people's conventional beliefs of what constitutes a healthy relationship, I completely believe that as long as everyone is of sound mind, an adult, and chooses to consent to that relationship, who am I to judge? It's none of my business. By the time of his eventual death, it has been reported that he had as many as 20 wives, though of course only one of them was actually legal. But the age of his wives he took are where I no longer give him any credit. He would eventually go on to have at least 12 wives, and his goal was to have 24 children, following a doctrine from scripture where these 24 children were to serve as the 24 ruling elders over the millennia after the return of Christ. I have been able to find the names of 16 children that were attributed to Vernon, three from his legal marriage to Rachel. I'll get into the wives and children a little later on. He also said that God told him they needed to arm up. He used the scripture, quote, from now on, let those that have no sword buy one, unquote. But like in the 1990s adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, where swords are now guns. As a very quick aside, I love that movie. <laughs> he also preached about our Second Amendment rights, and this was Texas in the 90s. So most of the followers were on board and ready to exercise their right to own a firearm for their protection. But not everyone at Mount Carmel was so gung-ho around this idea. While Vernon and his followers splintered from George, Rodin, and his followers, at this time they all still resided at Mount Carmel together, and George was technically in possession and the heir to the property. So they both continued to try to challenge one another on who was actually the savior and who has the power of God in attempts to win favor from the followers. Finally, George challenges Vernon, stating whoever can raise someone from the dead would obviously have the powers of God and would be the rightful leader of Mount Carmel. George chose the grave from the compound cemetery of an older woman who has been dead for years at this point. Whoever can bring her back would be the rightful leader. Vernon agrees to the challenge, but never actually intends to attempt the feat. He instead went to the police department and told them George's plan hoping he will be arrested for disturbing a grave. The police advise him that they cannot arrest him on the suspicion that he may disturb a grave, only if there were actual proof that he did in fact disturb one. Which also, as a little aside, is if you know that someone's going to commit a crime, aren't you like obligated to try to stop it? That's so crazy that you have to like, I don't know. I don't... Or you're saying the police should have like, 
just all the accusation that he might do it. At least look to make sure that they're not going to go do it. Why would you wait until it's done to then be like, oh, now you're in trouble? Why wouldn't, like, if they came, I'm not saying that the police, I don't know. It's just that. I mean, you're just going, you're, you're policing a crime before it happens. I don't know. I don't know that they, he should get in trouble for doing not doing something, but I feel like if you have pressure on someone like, hey, you shouldn't do that, maybe that could help influence them. Aren't we supposed to help take care of each other? <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I don't know what they could have done aside from just sitting out there and watching the grave. Yeah, which was stupid. Could have done that, I mean, but yeah. it is, you know, it's crappy to desecrate somebody's resting spot but i don't know if the police could have done anything yeah. or that i would want them to i know i and i don't even know necessarily that i want them to start policing things more than they already do but just i don't know it seems silly that it's like oh this person talked about they're gonna kill this person well they have to do it first before we can do anything <laughs> oh well you know police don't want to create any more work than necessary for themselves true <laughs> true all right, so anyways, lucky for Vernon, George actually believes in his godly abilities, so much so that he truly thought he was able to raise her from the dead. So George has her body exhumed from the grave, and in front of the group, he does everything he can to bring her back, to obviously no avail. Um, and I say this as Captain Obvious, um, because obviously, as far as I know, no one has ever been able to bring anyone back from the dead. When he unsuccessfully resurrects this poor woman, the crowd is quite let down and maybe giving a little side eye towards him. So Vernon and the group of his followers arrive to the compound armed and making a big production in their hopes that they can obtain evidence that George has desecrated the grave. But George has been tipped off to Vernon's plan and they were ready with their own guns. A large firefight rings out until the police arrive and shut it all down. Vernon and his group are arrested. Apparently, they all believe in their right to bear arms, but not in the need for target practice because no one was harmed. And I'm not disappointed that no one was killed or harmed. <laughs> Please do not mistake my words. I'm just simply commenting on what an unnecessary act of force on one another in such a hostile and disgusting way for what? Just a waste of resources and destruction of property. So Vernon goes on trial and the judge decides to be lenient and not sentence Vernon to an additional jail time, which enrages George, who is present at the trial and another huge spectacle ensues. George is so angry and weak and as we can see, unable to control himself. So he yells at the judge, I hope you get AIDS, <laughs> which results in the judge charging him with contempt of court and he is arrested on the spot. Now, do you think the police should have policed and made sure he didn't give anybody AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he probably believes in his ability to right, do right. so. <laughs> so now with George in jail and Vernon released, Vernon asserts himself as a rightful leader of the group. Almost immediately after his release from jail, Vernon takes a spiritual type journey and visits Israel to strengthen his bond with God. Well, on this trip, he decides that he needs to strengthen his brand and decides to change his name. He already has a strong bond with David from the Bible, so naturally he takes that on as his first name. And he chooses Koresh as his surname. Koresh is Hebrew for Cyrus. 
Cyrus was a biblical king that freed Jewish people from captivity in Babylon. By 1991, the group experiences a revival and begins to rebuild. They made use of the property and recycled materials that they had on hand to rebuild from the damage that had been done throughout the years and those disputes. The other neighboring areas also began to take notice of the group and people would come to hear what David had to say and to experience the community. Members of the Branch Davidians held different jobs throughout Waco and the money that they made they would give completely to the Davidian group to help sustain the group's needs as well as devoting whatever they could to help make the community the best they could, really trying to live their best lives. You know, one thing that is I think we should kind of highlight again, it's important because, and we're going to talk about it later, but the judge later on in this case was trying to deny certain legal accommodations to David DeGuerin, I think was his name, the lawyer. And uh, they didn't want him to come into the compound. And one of the reasons was they were trying to de- deny some of these accommodations and saying they were manufacturing drugs, uh, marijuana, cocaine inside Mount Carmel. And it's just relevant again that these people were working inside the community. They held regular jobs inside the community. There's so many interactions with the community. And if they were manufacturing drugs, you would think it would have been happening in the community. And there would be a lot of stories about that as well. Somebody would have seen something at some point. Somebody would have gone to the police about it. I mean, they were going to the police about digging up bodies out of graves. Like, they <laughs> they would have talked to the police about the drugs, too. Yeah. So, you know, it seems relevant because that is one thing they were trying to, you know, deny some rights to these people. Yeah, and spin the narrative. By accusing them of, yeah, manufacturing drugs. It's a lie, and it was, it's the first example we're covering of a straight-up lie that the government, uh... Used the media to portray. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, that showing that the community was coming and visiting the compound and was involved with the people that lived there and the people that lived at the compound were going to the community and were spending so much time there that it really looks like they were just trying to live their best lives. They were constantly devoting, like I said, their everything they could to making their lives better and just in being ingrained in their community. So if they could cook, they cooked for the group. If they were good at teaching, they taught the children. Um, If they knew how to do construction, they helped with construction projects. They removed weeds from the ground. They did the gardening. And the group also made money for their community by selling guns. And like I said, this was in the 1990s and it was in Texas. So there's a lot of guns. Right. Another thing, they were openly selling guns, but drugs were, they wanted to hide, you know, no one ever saw them doing the drugs. They they were out there selling guns on the regular and nobody saw anything about drugs. Right. So what I'm saying is you got to think if they were manufacturing drugs, that would have all been... We would have had stories of it. And where would they have been doing it? Because people were seeing the inside of the compound. Right, yeah. Where, if you're growing pot, you got to have huge fields of marijuana. Where were they growing that? No one saw that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. So, I know. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but definitely bookmark that. Everybody listening, that was a bold-faced lie, best we can tell. 
Yeah. And, and you have to ask you to, if they're if they if you know they'll lie about one thing, what else? So yes, <laughs> I agree. So they started a mail order business called the Mad Bag, where they were able to sell several types of guns and bulletproof vests and stuff like that. They eventually also took their merchandise to gun shows around Texas to sell to prospective buyers. As I stated a little bit ago, David believed he was to have 24 children. He made it his goal to have 24 kids. After a passage he plucked from the Bible, which meant that he preached to his followers that he should be able to be the only one having sex, and the rest should remain celibate until he chose you to sleep with so that he could produce the 24 children as he is the Messiah and they were going to save the earth. Followers have reported that he annulled all marriages within the compound except his own, allegedly, and he also preached about celibacy for all the male members except himself, and he took the women followers as his wife to fulfill this prophecy, as he believed. I was able to identify 12 women that he married and 16 children, and I could only find a couple of their ages. The women that he took as his wives included his first wife, Rachel, and they had three children, Cyrus Joseph Howell, who was born on March 20th of 1985, Star Hadassah, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to butcher almost all of these names, Howell, Star Hadassah Howell, who was April 6th of 1987, Bobby Lane Koresh, who was born December 14th of 1991, he then married Michelle Marie Jones Thibodeau, who was Rachel's sister, and Michelle had three children, Serenity C. Jones, Lot One, Little One Jones, and Chica Jones. He married Dana Okamoto, and their children were named Sky Okamoto, born in September of 1988, and Scooter Okamoto, who was born in April of 91. He married Nicole Elizabeth Gent Little and their children, David Lord Gent, Dayland Lord Gent, Pages Kara Brittany Gent, and then he married Sherry Jewell, and then he also married her 10-year-old daughter, who was reportedly his youngest wife, who was Kiri Jewell. Which, side note, I've heard a surviving follower state that in their belief, a child becomes an adult and is given full responsibilities as an adult at the age of 12. Almost as if she was trying to justify his actions of taking child bribes and sexually assaulting them. But he married and slept with a 10-year-old, so that would still be wrong in their beliefs. But I digress and am not done with the wives and children. He married Aisha Gayarfis Summers and their child was named Startle Summers. Aisha did not survive the fire during the raid, and she was expecting a baby, Summers, who was also lost. He was married to Catherine Grace Andrade, and their child was Chanel Andrade. He was also married to Judy Schneider, and their child's name was Mayana Songbird Schneider. And last but not least was his wife, Lorraine Sylvia, and their child, Hollywood Sylvia. I was unable to find a comprehensive list of the names of who survived the siege and who did not, but I was able to verify that during the the negotiations later on, 14 adults and 21 children left the compound, but none of these 21 children were David's. 
except the children who had left with Dana Okamoto, who later was known by Dana Kiabu, who had defected before the siege and taken her two sons with her. The Branch Davidians were becoming quite successful in their mission, and more people around the world were taking notice, including the United States government. The media began to make claims that the group was stockpiling weapons and that they were, they were a radicalized militia group that something needed to be done about. The Branch Davidians continued to state that the inventory that they had, which the media was claiming to be a stockpile, was just the weapons that they fully intended to sell through their mail order company and gun shows, as they had been doing, but the public was bombarded with the idea that the, the Davidians were only using this as a cover and were in fact preparing for a war. Additionally, rumors began to spread around Waco and the neighboring towns that the Davidians were not only stockpiling weapons, but they were also illegally modifying them from semi-automatic rifles to fully automatic rifles. In steps the ATF and the Government Bureau, which handles alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. The ATF hears that this church compound outside of Waco is receiving these suspiciously large package deliveries. So they decide to start sniffing around and investigate, but undercover. They didn't want to tip off the group because they need to essentially catch them in the act to have the indisputable evidence to charge them with a crime. So the ATF agents pose as college students and place themselves in an area around the compound. There's a neighboring farmhouse that a few of these undercover agents rent out so that they can constantly surveil the compound, see who is coming and going, try to watch any deliveries for suspicious activities, etc. But pretty much immediately, the Branch Davidians know that these quote-unquote college students are definitely federal agents, as the agents not only looked nothing like college students because they were much older and mature looking, they also didn't act like college students would. They drove expensively nice cars, wore clothing unlike that of a college student, suits and ties. They would take shifts and were seen leaving the house at the same time and arriving around the same time. David even personally invited them to visit the compound, which they did on several occasions and were given access to explore the area. Not suggesting anything here uh, at all. No, not suggesting any kind of conspiracy. It's just so ridiculous. It's almost too ridiculous to be, it seems almost too ridiculous to be true anyway, that the feds could be so feckless that they would have these people undercover as college kids and be so obvious about it. Right. Like nobody they bought it. They, they, they knew on day one that they were cops. Yeah. <laughs> and they just let them hang out. You know, it's just, it's almost too, it it's just like doesn't it. seem true. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, it is because they're also pretty stupid too. So Yeah. Local newspapers post articles about David Koresh, which are negative pieces about how he's a doomsday cult leader, essentially. They also accuse him of having 140 wives. They point out how everyone in the compound except David is forced to live a very old world life, completely devoted to God or David. They also allege that he was the perpetrator of sexual assaults, statutory rapes, polygamy. They were not allowed to participate in any in the outside world's quote unquote sins. So no one listened to outside music, no singing, no dancing, no TV, no sex, except for reading the Bible. 
which all of this is not really very true at all. <laughs> I listened to an interview with Heather Jones once, and uh, she was one of the children that was allowed to leave during the standoff before the final siege. And so they watched from like the stagey area, I think it was a church, for like the next two weeks. And her mom and dad are there, so she's in, her mom and dad are still inside the compound. So she's in FBI custody, protective custody for the remainder of the standoff. And one thing they're doing, she she describes it as feeling like they were mocking her because they were like, here's some soda. Would you, had, do you know what soda is? Have you ever seen this before? And they would do the same thing with candy. Like these feds are talking to this eight-year-old and who's been living in on planet Earth for eight years now. And they're like, this is candy. Do you know what candy is? Like, obviously I know what candy is, you Right. You know. And yeah. so they like we said, they've been in and among the community. <laughs> they weren't just held captive in their place of living. They lived a normal life pretty much. They did have some stricter Christian views, so there was some things that they were probably not allowed to have very often, but they right. definitely weren't like these jailed, sheltered <laughs> Yeah, they had like go-karts and, and yeah. bicycles. They had all the regular kid stuff. And these feds are talking to them as if they're space aliens from yeah. another planet. And it seemed that it's, to me, it comes off as mocking them. But I guess they could also be that stupid. I wouldn't underestimate that either. So. <laughs> So at this time, the compound was still quite large at around 77 acres on the outskirts of the town. And the town starts to throw around the word cult. And many start to believe that the group is being held at the compound against their will. Word of mouth also started spreading that the group was either manufacturing drugs or was under the influence of drugs. Or both. With these ideas, the small town of Waco begin to look at the group as potential violent extremists which only pushes the Branch Davidians further from being accepted in society. This pushes the ATF to decide that, that now is the time to act. The group needs to be stopped. The ATF, though, doesn't handle drugs or child abuse. The DEA handles drugs, and Child Services handles child abuse, not the ATF. But an arrest warrant is put on David Koresh. The ATF, who would be tasked with serving the warrant to arrest David, actually practiced on military compounds beforehand before finally calling the press to come and record everything while their arrest of David, essentially ruining their own element of surprise to arrive and quietly take David into custody. You know, um, right here, two important points that I want to make. <clears throat> on the child abuse charges but allegations excuse me like first of all it's hard to talk about this because obviously david koresh is a cult leader who's marrying young girls and probably we can give him the benefit of the doubt because there was never any guilt established but they did have investigators come in and look into the child abuse charges and nothing seemed out of place and so at that point you have to ask yourself well why was the investigation still ongoing is there somebody from the outside coming to the feds with new information because once they came and it's not even the feds that investigate that it was like social services so why 
when they went there and cleared them and saw no wrongdoing that they could establish, why is it still, you know, what happened then? How did this get passed up to the feds? You have to ask yourself that question. And, and I think, you know, obviously that's not how it should work or is supposed to work even. And that smells fishy. And two, on the gun charges, um, or the allegations, excuse me, I, this is also anecdotal and it doesn't prove any innocence, but David Koresh wrote the ATF a letter inviting them to Mount Carmel. Come, you don't need a judge or a warrant. Come in, look around. You know, if they're manufacturing illegal firearms, that's going to be hard to hide he quickly. Walked, he walked up to the ATF by agents that were posted outside. Right. And he, they were in the compound often. Mm -hmm. Like, just, he was like, come on, the doors are open. You are welcome in any time. And they were there. They didn't, he didn't come to them like, hey, we know you're ATF. He was like, oh yeah, you're college students, quote yeah. unquote. Come right. on, come hang out, come <laughs> see what we're about. So he was showing them like he would a college student knowing that they were government agents. Yeah. So where were they hiding all of this stuff? Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it again, it doesn't prove anything one way or another, but it, it you have to, as an outside listener to all this, you have to ask yourself, it seems like the child abuse allegations probably could have stopped right when social services showed up and established no wrongdoing and said, not just that, but there's plenty of documents from them that say that all the kids seem fine. Yeah. Nobody seems like they're... What do they know most times anyway, but also... I think the child abuse is more of the fact that he did have an affinity for young girls. So if he right. is having sex with the girls who are under the age of 18, then that is, in my opinion, child abuse. No, no, right. But I don't it think is. in any other capacity... And it is still speculation that those things happened. There's these people who are you know they didn't survive none of his children survived so and the you know we don't know 100% what happened and who was what and you know what was tied to him but there's enough evidence in my a book he married a 14 year old girl so at the very least he and he tried to marry others and he showed interest in lots of them um, so I think he definitely was guilty at the very least in that aspect. But, but but they tried to make it seem like there was a lot more happening that was not happening. The 14-year-old uh, child he married, is that even, does that violate a Texas age of consent law? His, her parents agreed to it. So legally, it's not right. child abuse. Well, that's I the think point I'm morally making. it is. Oh, 100%. But it, she wasn't the only one. 100%. The point I'm, the, you're absolutely right. The point I'm making is, even if social services came in and they were like, yeah, I married this 14-year-old little girl, that's not, a, that's not against the law. Right. And so at that point, it, was, it seemed clear to social services that nothing illegal was happening, and I, I feel like that's probably where it could have stopped. But somehow it, it gets passed over to the feds. I mean, I don't. You know, I think it that, was just used, in my opinion, and I think 
the media tells him that they have 140 wives and that he's got he's right. abusing all of the kids, which isn't the narrative, and that's not what the true what quote unquote true story is actually. So I think that they did manipulate their approach using those negative things that the media was saying so that they could get in there and make a big make a big show. 100%. Look, they I'm not David Crash is a cult leader, so everything about him is controlling, coercive, manipulative, not good. There's nothing good really. So I'm not suggesting any of that. What I'm saying is I hope it's coming across clear is that from the legal standpoint they were also pretty much in the clear on everything. Yes. And show me what they were guilty of. And then it... So I'm just... You know, it's just suspicious that the FBI and the ATF were there, you know, still on these child abuse charges or gun charges that seem to not be real grounded in reality. Maybe. Right. So. so on February 28th of 1993, the ATF decides to to use a search warrant and arrest warrant to raid the compound and arrest David. Typically, when needing to enact an arrest warrant in a situation where the individual may respond in a violent way, they will use tactics to utilize the element of surprise to hopefully catch the alleged perpetrator unprepared to defend themselves. But on this day, they went about things in a completely different way. By alerting the media and showing up at 10 a.m., when they say they believed everyone in the compound would be at work. Instead, David's brother happened to be at work in town when a reporter asked him for directions to the compound, alerting him and others of the ATF's plan. So everyone at the compound knew of the upcoming raid and they were there waiting to defend their property. The media arrived and used hundreds of cameras to caption, capture everything while the ATF quickly drove up onto the property using cattle trailers, which were all filled with agents, dressed in bomb suits and tactical gear. Even though everything was recorded, the ATF and the media claim that immediately as the ATF arrived on the compound, the Branch Davidians began to fire at them. And then in self-defense, the ATF fired back. But the Branch Davidians stated that the ATF pulled up and immediately began to fire on the compound. The video evidence shows that pretty much as soon as the ATF pull up, they are firing at the compound. But it's difficult to tell if there were any shots fired first from the Davidians. There's no video evidence of the Davidians firing at the ATF first. It was said that as they were pulling up to the property, David advised the women to take the children and then hide while the men remained to help defend. Truly, it doesn't really matter who fired the first shot, but pretty much immediately the compound is in a massive battle. The ATF used helicopters in addition to the men on the ground to fly over the compound, and the men in the helicopters were firing at the Davidians. One member of the Davidians was on the top of a silo and was shot and killed by the helicopters. The Davidians were furious at this extensive use of force against U.S. citizens, and the ATF first claimed that the helicopters didn't even have guns. But later, while David was on the phone with negotiators, they admit that the helicopters didn't have any guns because nothing was mounted on them, but the agents within the helicopter were armed and firing at the compound. So technically, they weren't lying. The helicopters didn't have guns. The people did. 
But finally, there is a stand down and everyone agrees to a ceasefire. Do we... I, I, I missed if you said it, sorry. Do, do we know what time of day it was the ATF rolled up? It was like um, 10 a.m. That's right, okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. It's a weird time of day to right. show up. It's the middle of the day, basically. Another time, yeah. Um, imagine... Imagine you're David Crash and all the people inside and all of the sudden in your peaceful little compound there are helicopters and tanks rolling up and hundreds of cameras pointed on you and 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 feds and and SWAT gear and you're just like what the you know yeah and you're like you have guns because you're ready for a fight because that's what you believe you know what are you gonna do right you're gonna sit there like choppers and tanks run you over man like we don't know you're the ATF probably yeah, because they didn't come up, like, with... They came in cattle trailers. Which you... You're right. Now, I'm not suggesting they should have had an ATF agent stand at the perimeter and be like, Hello, it's the ATF. May we come in? But if you're really worried about surprise, this is what, like, they always... When, when they're coming to get anybody, they show up, like, in the middle of the night or the early morning hours before, before you woke up. Right. And they're banging at the door, kicking the door down. That mitigates a lot of the chance that you're going to get defense. Right. So, you know, that also, I'm not, and again, I don't think the ATF should have been there at all. I'm not advocating for that, but you know me. But I, it seems like they're, everything they do seems like they wanted pushback from the members inside Mount Carmel. Yeah, they definitely wanted a show of force. Right. Yeah. So, due to the massive show of force and now a standoff between the government and the Davidians, they decide to send in the FBI to take things over from the ATF. The FBI bring their crisis team since they were widespread beliefs that the people were being held at the compound against their will, and the FBI believed they would need the help of hostage negotiators to get those being held at the compound out. The problem is there is and has never been any actual evidence that anyone was held there against their will. Surviving members have all claimed that it was a free society and no one was ever held there against their free will. They chose to be there and be members. In their minds, they were a religious group that was violently attacked by the government. During a later talk with the negotiators, David even questioned these actions of the ATF, asking why they chose to storm their compound and, and fire against them when David was known to be out and about in the community and was seen around town just days before the siege. Surely the police would have been able to swarm him while he was out in public and quickly and quietly place him in custody. Well, at this time, you see, the government was starting to question whether the ATF was even an actually necessary division. There were talks about additional budget cuts and potentially dissolving the branch entirely. So a massive show of force against the radicalized, violent, religious cult, all captured by the media, could surely help show their necessity. One thing um, that I think is important to notice, or make note of, that I don't think a lot of regular people even realize, and I didn't realize really fully, you know, all the stuff that... Uh, the feds have even like local police now um, a lot of it seems so excessive and so they have to deploy these things to justify the budget to have them right 
they have to use them. And so that's the reason you had helicopters and tanks showing up, like you said. I mean, otherwise, those things are going to, if they're not using them, they're going to go away. You know, they're yeah, not going to have they're them. They're going to put that money so, somewhere else. And how are you going to use tanks and helicopters? You got to make it look like they're necessary. So you got to get them in a situation where, like, you're never going to need tanks and helicopters on most of the American people because, you know, we don't have any of that anyway. Right. <laughs> so they were ready to create this show that these hundred people inside this compound were fighting against them and they yeah, needed to they were ready to go to war heavy-handed approach and it's just bullcrap so instead of peacefully taking david into custody and then ex- executing the search warrant quietly without the media circus to potentially find that there may have not been any drugs being consumed or manufactured and the guns were not illegally modified and they were all bought and sold legally the powers that be took the opposite approach resulting in several people being injured or killed and a very long standoff to ensue which resulted as we'll find out later in a lot more death all roads going in and out of the compound were shut down no one was allowed in or out of the compound including the media from all over the world who arrived to try to capture what was happening. The FBI makes contact with the compound and sends in cameras and telephones, etc., so that they can communicate to one another and so that everyone outside can see that everyone inside is okay. The members of the Davidians would record themselves and send out messages. Negotiators work with the group and eventually agree that they will accept an hour-long speech that David prepared and they would hand it out to the br- to a bunch of local radio stations to be broadcast. The tape shows David speaking about his beliefs and his teachings, as well as him stating that he will immediately leave the compound once the tape aired. Unfortunately, David did not surrender at this time. Over the next month, the FBI is able to negotiate the release of 35 people, 21 of them being children. This was done a few people at a time. The Davidians would ask for something, and the negotiators would agree to some of them as long as some of the members were were released. The FBI would use these opportunities and insert microphones into the care packages that they would trade for group members being released. They used the microphones to listen, to try to listen in on the group and see what they were planning, and try to use information they gleaned from the microphones to develop strategies to end the standoff. During the standoff, the police cut all power and water to the facility. They also installed giant speakers on the grounds and began to blast the compound at all hours of the day and night with sirens, chainsaw noises, the same song on repeat for hours upon hours, like these boots are made for walking. There were also animals screaming. At the same time, giant Stadium type light fixtures were faced at the compound throughout all night, causing the Branch Davidians to be subjected to sleep deprivation, potential starvation, dehydration, and total psychological warfare. Um, there's uh, David Thibodeau talks in an interview about watching a couple things. There was a child killed in the first stand like when they first got there yeah and they buried i don't don't know if you said this i'm sorry Mm -hmm. they buried the child out on the 
uh, premises and the tanks were like during this period of like psychological torture they're like driving over the kid's grave yeah they're these kids all had like go-karts not they didn't all have but there was go-karts outside there was bikes like all the children's toys Cars, yeah the the feds are driving the tanks over the children's go-karts and bikes um crushing the adults cars like <laughs> i don't care what you thought david crush did he's probably guilty of something but does that make everybody in there guilty right it, does, it doesn't make one children. other person guilty especially yeah. not the kids you know heather jones talks about when she was let go when they evacuated her out before the final siege um her parents gave her this her dad gave her this teddy bear it was the last thing she was ever going to get from her dad it was the last word she was ever going to have with her dad and then she leaves and she kind of knew that even as a young child but <clears throat> she gets into fbi custody and she's sad and one of the cops is taking her downstairs to get a soda and they walk past the room where two of the feds are ripping the teddy bear apart cutting it open with knives and laughing and joking saying we better check it for drugs <laughs> that's just awful and yeah. it just goes to show you as awful as you think david koresh is and he probably was they're just as bad oh yeah they're just as bad they subjected those people to insane yeah. amounts of torture including the children yes when questioned about using these tactics on the uh, country's own citizens, the government claimed ignorance and never admitted to using these tactics at all, even though everything was recorded. During negotiations, the Branch Davidians would beg them to stop these psychological games. Many women within the group would look outside and the ATF agents would pull their pants down and show them their ass. <laughs> The standoff ended up lasting 51 days total. The negotiators and David had only a hundred, had over a hundred conversations totaling over 60 hours, which were all recorded until David started to lose trust in the FBI completely. The negotiators would be saying that they were going to stand down, but then the tactical team on the ground would drive tanks onto the property and begin to destroy various items, including the trees and the car and even the building's walls, including driving in circles on the grave of the young boy that was killed on the silo during the initial siege, like you said. Sorry, I didn't know you were gonna go there. That's okay. <laughs> this blatant deception, ta deceptive tactics, along with the media coverage sensationalizing the situation by comparing the members to the Heaven's Gate group and pushing the idea that the Davidians might all be preparing to a mass suicide caused tempers to continue to rise and escalate the situation. Finally, the F ATF agents decide enough is enough. Negotiations break down completely and the negotiation team leaves. The ATF uses large tanks to penetrate the side of the walls of the compound and then fill the inside, inside of the compound with CS gas, which is a type of tear gas but is not recommended to be used on children and in some cases not to be used on adults. There were not gas masks inside the compound that would fit a child and experts have stated that being exposed to this gas would result in 
the need for immediate medical attention. So these actions, of course, caused the Branch Davidians to pick up their weapons and begin to fire back again in defense of their lives and their property. For six hours, shots ring out until just a few minutes after noon, a small fire breaks out inside the compound, which quickly followed by two more fires resulting in the entire compound almost immediately become bursting into flames. Who started or how the fire started is still unknown. There is evidence that the fire started right as one of the additional tanks began to admit the CS gas into the building. CS gas has been proven to be extremely flammable when first released, and this was exactly when the fire started. The Davidians say the fire started quickly and spread like wild through the gas-filled corridors, catching everything on fire. Of course, the government has to cover their ass and has ex experts come forward at that time to say that CS gas is actually flame resistant and there was no way that it caused this. The microphones that were inside as bugs within the buildings also recorded members of the Davidians allegedly talking about lighting the gas on fire. They were heard saying, quote unquote, keep those fires going. So just a little point of note here. There's some FLIR photography. So uh, FLIR is, for people who don't know, it's forward-looking infrared. Um, and some of the film taken by the FBI during the assault not only shows men emerging from a tank and firing automatic weapons into the rear of the compound, and this would presumably be done to stop anyone from escaping from the rear of the compound, but... Uh, comes complete with government pilots describing the movements of the men dressed in black as it happens. So the, the, the FLIR footage is showing the guys jump out of the back of the tank and then there's pilots sort of narrating what's going on. Yeah, they're coming around the back, oh, shooting at people escaping from the compound. I mean, they're this is probably going back, I assume, to the Situation Room, mm -hmm. okay, where Janet Reno and Clinton and all of them are hanging out. So... That's what's happening there. Um, FBI spokesperson Byron Sage admitted these recordings contained tactical conversations of the FBI hostage rescue team and contained discussions of use of CS explosive shells. Uh, the tactic conversations were transmitted in real time via satellite to the White House Situation Room. Okay. It's just more evidence that they were always lying about everything. And also... <laughs> If they were really stopping people from escaping, that's like, we'll get into it a little bit later, but the, the whole thing's just murderous, man. Yeah. It's murderous. Some of the FBI agents also say that they heard gunfire at the time, but there is a huge possibility that if it was inside of the building, that it was just ammunition that was exploding from the insane heat of the fire. Mm. In the end, nine people were able to escape but the 75-ish that remained were trapped inside and perished, including several children. The fire was so destructive that it was hard to actually count and determine the exact number of those that lost their lives. David Koresh was found among those dead, including 25 children. There were also reports that upon the autopsies of 19 of those killed were killed by point-blank gunshots and one of the children that had been stabbed to death. David had been shot in the center of his forehead 
but no one knows exactly what happened inside. At the end, 11 survivors were charged with the events and two were released with the remaining nine receiving between five to 40 year jail, jail sentences. So were the Branch Davidians actually this radicalized religious doomsday cult who were arming up for the coming apocalypse, ready to fight while simultaneously abusing the children within the group who needed to be stopped? Or was the ATF in desperate need to show their worth and sought out this fringe group, used psychological warfare, enacted out a warrant for drugs and child abuse which does not fall under their jurisdiction, and essentially put the red button in their hands to cement their place as a necessary part of the government division? Could this all have been avoided? The pressure of the public forced the government to, to congressional hearing, including those that authorized the attack, and the surviving Branch Davidians. Shortly after the incident occurred, the site of Mount Carmel was bulldozed, making it impossible to inspect the area for any potential evidence that could help answer any questions. These hearings were broadcast to the world, which luckily did bring to light all of the information we now know, because believe me, what was released to the general public prior to this congressional hearing was extremely biased information and some outright falsities. These hearings brought to light how far the ATF and FBI overstepped during the standoff. But Congress concluded that no one on the side of the government did anything outside of the scope of law, and no one was charged with any of their involvement in this massacre. You know, Obviously, they investigated themselves and found no wrongdoing. As they always do. Right. I remember they, during that time, and I was young, so I don't fully remember it, but there were some, like, calls for Janet Reno to resign. Uh, it's important for people to realize, for when this inevitably happens again, that even when people inside the government are forced to resign or or law enforcement for something like this. They're, they're just gonna give us a kindler, gentler face for the next massacre. That's all it is. Like they just replace them with their own people. And like one thing I think that's important that if somebody was asking me personally about Waco, what the, because you always wanna know what, what did we learn? What can we do different? Like how do we stop a Waco from happening again? The answer is, there's nothing you can do as long as you have a militarized police state and law enforcement because this will definitely happen again. And I, and I hope that that's what people begin to realize is that, yeah, it's a cult. So it's hard, it's hard to have the conversation that the feds overstepped because once you start saying that, oh, you're a Koresh apologist or, you know, you think the Davidians were good people and, Two things like, can be right at the same time. Correct, yeah. yeah. I, and, and I don't... And I think probably most of the Davidians were fine people. Yeah. Koresh, as a cult leader, is not. And, you know, you talked about some things that he was doing beforehand. I mean, the guy is some manipulative, controlling, coercive, you know what. So, not good at all. But it was... It's a story of the cult of the Davidians being murdered by a rival cult of statists and the government will go to all ends yeah i mean they'll just do they'll, they'll whatever they have to do 
to maintain power, control, and cover it up, they will. If they, you know, if they have done anything wrong, they'll do whatever they can to cover it up and they will kill you. They, like we saw it with Ruby Ridge, we saw it with Waco. They will murder you if they have to because you're just you're in the way of the goal. And they will manipulate and convince everyone else that it was necessary for that them it, to do yeah. so. Um, they, they they don't have to, <laughs> you know, a cult should probably not exist, but that doesn't mean they need to be murdered, right? And right. so, and who are you? Like, the people should be terrified of that. I'm not trying to spread fear porn or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, that should be the most terrifying part of this, that everybody listening, everybody that, that ever heard anything about Waco should hear your government will kill you if they have to and that is the scariest part and that's the biggest message of Waco to me that's what I take away from it you know it's just a tragedy what happened to those people and the you met and one thing I want to say there was some kids that were killed point blank yeah maybe they were trying they were to the run ones out. trying to get out you yeah. know and obviously they put one between Koresh's eyes I think. I don't think Crush killed himself. He could have, I guess. could have had them kill him, too. Like, one of yeah. his right It's possible. It, I don't want to speculate on right. that, because it's possible. That's been, I think, a narrative, maybe, in some of those, like, made-for-TV movies and stuff. I feel like they have it say that one of his followers shot him, but there's no evidence that that is what actually happened, so... And also then, a few years later, in 1999, a whistleblower came forward to advise that while the ATF states that no fire-starting materials were used to ignite the CS gas, pyrotechnics were found within an evidence locker. Another investigator is called to review the new evidence, and they found that it is still clear that the fire started somewhere other than where the pyrotechnics were used. Yet somehow they they know this, um, even though they did not preserve the scene and destroyed everything. So what do you think? Was the government justified in their actions they took against the group? Should they have been brought down and murdered in their homes because they defended against the siege? I believe that there is evidence that David and the group strongly believed in his marriage to underage children, and that is wrong. There have been survivors that state the group believes that when the person reached the age of 12 that they have reached full maturity and are looked at as adults and given adult responsibilities. While I respect their beliefs, I also know that there is scientific evidence that our brain does not fully develop until we're around the age of 25 years old, meaning in my opinion that children should never ever be held to the same standard as an adult due to the fact that their brains are not developed enough to rationally handle the same complex thoughts, ideas, and situations as an adult. So I do believe that child services and the welfare branch should have been investigating the group better to ensure the safety of the children. And even though we've touched on that and how they were there investigating, I do know that in many times, child services does not do everything that they should. For sure, (laughs) including maybe telling the feds that there was lots of kids in there and they shouldn't kill them all, right? right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, there's that... um, Right. Obviously, obviously you don't want to see kids harmed in any sort of way. And that's the that's another big takeaway. 
I didn't mean to interrupt you. No. That's another big takeaway for me about Waco is, um, you know, you always hear some people say, well, they were all there on their own. Like, they all were voluntarily there, part of this group. No one was forced. No one was kept captive. And that may be true for the fully developed thinking adults, but I bet none of the kids were, you know, they were forced to be there by their parents. Right. <laughs> they didn't have They a can't choice. go out on their own. They yeah. didn't have a choice. And so what would happen is if the Davidians continued, those kids would have grown up and then done the same thing to their kids. And that's the that's the crappy part about the cult aspect is that the kids were obviously trapped in it. And then they were murdered for it. Right. Like they... <laughs> that's such a... It's so sad. Sucks, yeah. Yeah. Because you gotta know there's kid. There's 25 kids in the compound. Yeah. You gotta know that. And you went in with tanks and how? They were they were firing like you you touched on it. The, the, the helicopters were firing down on the compound. David DeGaren finally gets to go inside. He was the lawyer that represented David Koresh. When he finally gets to go inside, uh, Koresh is taking him around the the building, and they looking at the roof and they were shooting into the roof of the house there where they were all right. staying and it, you know the lawyer says it was easy to tell because you could see that the the damage the the roof was exploding into, into the house yeah. you know they weren't firing out of the roof at the helicopter why would you fire out of the roof at a helicopter anyway right <laughs> they were raining bullets onto the house where they all were like if they could have got them there, that would have been the end of it. And they were happy with that. They yeah. would have been fine with that end. Right. If the helicopters could have killed all of them, they would have been probably fine by them. And there are children in there. Right. They didn't give a shit. Massive amounts of children. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe that the way the ATF or the FBI handled the situation was even with any intention to prevent the loss of life. No. It was probably with the intention to make more loss of life. Right. <laughs> and they wanted to kill as many as possible. They want to make a, a bigger show, as much violence. And it got a little bit away from them because they didn't think they were going to burn the place down. Yeah. But if they could have, if they could have killed everybody in the first shoot off, shootout, um, they could have easily spun the narrative that when they shot against, they shot back at us. So we had to do it. Yeah. I think that was their full intention at yeah. first. And they didn't want it just to go out that long. Yeah. And then, then the lawyer gets involved and drags it on for like three, four weeks. And now the, you can see, it's like they just, they got impatient. We're like, we got to get these people out of there. And then they then burned everybody. Yeah. You know, it's like, God almighty, man. Yeah. They're, uh, to me, the only thing they wanted to do was to show their necessity and the Branch Davidians just happened to be the ones of their target. They had to show that they were a necessary branch of the police force. They stormed the compound with the sole purpose to escalate the situation and cause the Davidians to return, to respond in turn, causing a huge loss of life and ensuring that no matter what, the government would see to it that the group was brought down. This did not have to happen this way, and I believe those involved should have been held accountable. They have got to stop allowing the government to threaten and bully us into submission. To this day, people obviously are still fascinated by this tragedy. The United States government used an excessive show of force against a small group of its own citizens, 
resulting in a massive firefight and loss of innocent life. The narrative around the story is these people inside this compound felt like they had to fight until the bitter end because they knew they were getting jammed up with weapons charges. And that's sort of what drove them, motivated them to fight back. And I think it's important to note that what they were even going to be charged with because they were never charged with it. But what it looked like the only thing they could have got them on was they were, they had uppers and lower receivers from different gun manufacturers. So they were sort of like custom making these weapons. And that was a violation of the gun act. But I mean, it carried like a three year sentence. Yeah. And so these, they weren't like going away for life. Yeah. And David DeGarren had gone into the compound finally and, and, and convinced David Koresh that, yeah, I think we can beat that charge probably. And so there was a lot of optimism, according to David Thibodeau, there was a lot of optimism on the inside during the, the standoff that they could get out of it with minimal consequence. Right. Even after killing a fed because the way they got there that day, which we didn't really get into this part of it, but it was sort of not by Texas law how they came right. up on there, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and I don't want to get into it too much and make it make speculation that's not true, but story is David DeGuerin tells Thibodeau and Koresh that he thinks there's at least a decent chance they can lower that charge too and maybe they don't get on the hook for killing a fed so i think this idea that they were fighting for their lives inside the compound is a little overblown i think that the people inside had high hopes that it was going to end peacefully yeah i mean the only time they ever were caught firing at them was when they were being attacked they right. were just standing their ground and trying to protect themselves. Absolutely. They And as soon as it was a possibility for a ceasefire, they would put their weapons down. Yes. And if they were just trying to fight for a war to end all days, they wouldn't be stopping. They would just keep going until the end. Yeah. So it doesn't fit the narrative They'd at all. They'd have gone out like some G's if they yeah. thought that's how it was happening. But, they, you know, they probably would have killed the children themselves. Right. You know, like that whole thing. So... Which is sort of the narrative that was spun. Like, there, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but one of the things about those kids being shot point blank is that they did that to them inside the compound before they burned to death. Like, it's been suggested that the parents killed the kids before they burned up. I don't buy that. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. I've also heard that they, and I I don't know if this is true because, I've also seen a lot of really heavily biased things, but that a lot of the children's bodies were found in this. They had taken a school bus and some kind of built it into the ground like a storage unit. And so they, the women and children had run in there to uh, get away from the gas. But they suffocated to death. There, they, like there was some exit, but they couldn't get out. They were trying to like dig out of oh, wow. to get out, and yeah, that's yeah. where they were found. I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was also later came to light that Timothy McVeigh, who became known as the Oklahoma City bomber, 
was present at the Waco standoff and was selling anti-government memorabilia and stickers. And it was later determined that the bombing he orchestrated was in protest of what happened at Waco. I'm not going to get into any of that um, in great detail right now, um, but it is a potential content for another episode. Let me know if you'd be interested in that. So this is the end of the story. Um, what do you think? Please find me on social media um, and share your thoughts and opinions, but please be respectful. We never know who's listening and reading and if a victim or family member were to read and listen to this, you know, we wanna ensure that we're doing our part to be kind but I'm very interested in what you think. Also, did you like this type of episode? Not just me talking. Um, I'd be happy to um, get more involved or do more content like this. Um, Chris and I are already talking about doing a couple more episodes, possibly Timothy McVeigh, um, maybe the Unabomber. Uh, me here will be your least uh, audience so far, probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, I doubt that. <laughs> Um, but yes, please, if you have any case suggestions, feel free to sh uh, send them my way. Find me, like I said, on social media. You say feel free to shut up. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> the next case that I'm going to cover is a quite old story. And I mean old. It's from the 17th century. So please stay tuned for that. I'm going to change things up a little bit more again. So... Um, I'm so grateful that you have decided to listen, especially if you've made it all the way to the end. Please know that I'm so happy to have you here. Um, and I really hope that you'll continue to listen. And please remember, no matter what life throws at you, take it with grace, show some compassion, and spread kindness. Love you. Peace. Peace.